Hello and welcome to another episode of the It's a Crime O'Clock Somewhere podcast. This is episode 5. Today I will be talking about the murder of Patrick Dennehy. My biggest source was the documentary Disgraced. This documentary in my podcast today will be about Patrick's murder and about the Baylor basketball scandal that happened during the 2003 season. Patrick Dennehy was born on January 28, 1982. Patrick was a very good athlete, but his stepfather said he didn't pick up a basketball until he was 13. He was also 6'10", and this made him a star recruit for many teams. He started his career at the University of New Mexico, where he played from 2001 to 2002, and then transferred to Baylor University, where he was a red shirt and eventually played from 2002 until his death in 2003. was a terrific player in University of New Mexico, and uh, he was 6'9", a very agile player. I saw a wonderful young man and was excited about him coming to Baylor. He looked like he had all the attributes that might allow him to be an NBA player. Patrick was probably 13, about 13 years old, before he picked up his first basketball. He just learned like crazy, and he became a great player overnight. It came easy to him like everything else. First time I ever met Patrick was a freshman in high school in San Jose. I looked up to him, figuratively and literally. He, he was the friendliest guy I ever met. He, he was a funny guy and he knew that. He was a brother to me. He felt a, a need to protect the people he cared about a lot. Everywhere he went, I went. Patrick and I used to go all over all over town to his high school so he could practice, go out to eat, go to movies. He was always kind-hearted and he he would bend over backwards for people. He loved hanging out with his friends, he loved to joke, he loved he loved to do stuff and make you laugh too. He's kind of a clown in a way, off the court. At the time of his death, Patrick was living in an off-campus apartment with a few other roommates and his friend Carlton Dotson. Carlton was also a Baylor basketball player. He was from Herlock, Maryland, and grew up wanting to play basketball. Carlton Dotson had not signed the scholarship yet. I went up and looked at him, and Carlton was very, very skilled offensively. Uh, somebody I thought would be good for part-time minutes. Yeah, Herlock. It's a rough little town, man. Small town. Dirt roads. You know, it's just not a good place to live. And if you if you do live there, you want out of Herlock. You know, nobody wants to stay. The little area of Herlock, not much happening up there. The four years that I had Carlton, we won 85 games, and we won more basketball games than uh, had ever been won at North Chester. Carlton was the leader of the team. He was basically our LeBron James. He knew his talent was going to take him places. Everybody knew they was going to see Carlton on TV one day. Everybody knew Carlton was going to make it. In 1999, North Chester went to the state championship game and brought home the first state championship that North Chester had ever had. It was a big deal for our community. I'll never forget coming through town that night. We were escorted in with the Herlock Police and the Sheriff Department sirens going people out on their front porches waving to us and stuff 
It really did something for the kids. It really did. Carlton had a good personality. He was friendly to be around. He wasn't arrogant at all about his abilities. There's some kids that don't let you in, you know, but he did. And I got bonded with him. He spent the night at my house and, you know, eat at my house, mess around with my kids. I, I would be proud if he married my daughter. Shortly before Patrick's murder, Patrick and Carlton allegedly reported to the Baylor coaching staff that they were being threatened by two other teammates, Harvey Thomas and Larry Johnson. Patrick and Carlton were so concerned with their safety that they had bought two pistols and a rifle and would go out and test shoot them. A few days later, Patrick went missing, and the last time he was seen was June 12, 2003. His family and friends became concerned when Patrick didn't call his stepdad, Brian, on Father's Day and his roommates found out that their dogs had not been fed. On June 19th, Patrick's family filed a missing persons report with the Waco Police Department. On June 25th, Patrick's car, a Chevrolet Tahoe, was found in a parking lot of a mall in Virginia Beach, Virginia. The license plate were also removed. It was determined by the police that the killer must have done it. This was also very close to where Patrick's friend Carlton grew up. Carlton was now a person of interest, and the police wanted to interview him. Interview is 90% listening and 10% talking. I let Carlton talk, but the more he talked, the more relaxed he seemed. He didn't really want to talk about Patrick as much as he did about drug use at Baylor University. Coach Abar, in what I would call a general, Coach Abar has Claire selling cocaine for him. He had Ellis Kidd selling drugs for him. He had, you know, uh, Hardy's in the mix with him. Um, I did not believe that that was the main point because every time I started talking to Carlton about Patrick, it kind of get tense. Patrick, you know, he's he's a he wants to please, you know, everyone. He <clears throat> at points during the interview, Detective Fuller would leave the room, which is a common thing for us to do. I was outside of the interview room, uh, monitoring it on a TV, and uh, Dotson would mumble things. <laughs> during the interview, I was asking Carlton about Patrick's, his personality. Patrick was, Patrick is what I would call a pretty sturdy person. He said, was, instead of is. Patrick was, Patrick is what He slipped up. But he called himself and said is, you know, right away. Why would you say was if you didn't already know what the situation was with Patrick and his current condition? When did you last see Patrick? Uh, we didn't stop this right here. Are you wanting to stop this interview? Is that what you're telling me? Um, yes, sir.
A few days later, Carlton contacted the FBI and told them he wanted to make a statement. received a phone call from the Dorchester County Sheriff's Office who indicated to me that uh, Carlton Dotson wanted to make a statement and wanted an FBI agent present. And frankly, at the time, I think my first question to Captain Hurley was, who's Carlton Dotson and why does he want to talk to the FBI? My understanding is that at that point, uh, an attorney, his attorney had send notifications out to different media outlets that Carlton Dotson was going to make a statement. I was thinking, do we have some sort of publicity stunt taking place here, or what What exactly are the circumstances? Mr. Carlton Dotson, do you understand that you're being reported? Yes. Why do you want us to come pick you up? What did you come here to tell us? There are many, many demand spirits that are after There are things taking place that are Unexplainable. What kind of things? People are trying to take me out. Man. People are trying to do things that have been tried since I've been in Waco. You want to talk to the Waco Police Department again? No. I know. My faith is so strong, I have been taken over by Howard Howard. <laughs> My family is a family of prophets. You believe yourself to be a prophet? I'm <laughs> <laughs> much more than that. I'm much more than that. Something bothering you, Carl? All men should sin, but there is time to repent. Time to repent. Are you trying to do that now? I have already been forgiven for any sin I may have committed. Yes. Is there something you want to tell us about the disappearance of your roommate? No, that's it. Carlton Dodson was arrested on July 21st, 2003. Carlton was interviewed before and after he confessed to murdering Patrick, and throughout the interrogation, he constantly told the police that he was hearing voices and was taken over by a higher power. He also referred to Patrick in the past tense, which the police caught on to right away. On July 25th, Patrick's decomposed body was found in a gravel pit in Waco. He was taken to Dallas for an autopsy, and it was determined that he died from gunshot wounds to his head. There were mixed reviews from many people when it was discovered that Carlton Dodson was the murderer. Many people who were friends and teammates of the two believed that Harvey Thomas and Larry Johnson, the men who had allegedly threatened Carlton and Patrick, would have had something to do with it. However, Patrick's family believed that they had the right person. It would take a while for Carlton to go to trial due to his mental illness. In October 2004, Carlton was found incompetent to stand trial and was sent to a state hospital until he could stand trial. He was at the hospital for about four months and then he was sent back to jail. In February 2005, Carlton was put on medication, but he was told he could stand trial. Many psychologists even thought Carlton was lying about his so-called hallucinations and hearing of voices. In the documentary, nobody ever brought up that they thought Carlton was mentally ill until weeks before Patrick's murder. I just don't think he could have snapped in a span of several weeks, but I also don't want to ever accuse anyone of faking mental illness. It's just odd. On June 8, 2005, a few days before his trial, Carlton pleaded guilty to killing Patrick. 
On June 15th, he was sentenced to 35 years in prison and will be eligible for parole this year, 2021. Carlton Dodson is currently at the John B. Connolly Unity in Kennedy, Texas. Now we are going to talk about a very shitty person named Dave Bliss, who was the Baylor men's basketball coach in 2003 at the time of the murder. Dave Bliss also coached at the University of New Mexico, where he also coached Patrick. He told Patrick he could be his star player if he came with him to Baylor. Patrick agreed. Dave Bliss was also paying for Patrick's car in his apartment and violating NCAA rules. He was also caught on tape, recorded by one of his assistant coaches named Abar Rouse. On tape, he was heard talking to Abar and some other players trying to drag Patrick and Carlton for using and dealing drugs and trying to take the blame off him. Dave Bliss also tried to deny any of this happened, even though he's heard on tape. I'd be lying if I said that I wasn't kind of motivated in a fashion by that to do what I did. I went and I picked up a $25 recorder and I actually wired myself up. I put the mini cassette in my belt line and then I took the mic and I ran it up through my shirt to the side of my pants, close to my arm. So you really couldn't tell if I pulled my shirt out a little bit from my belt, you really couldn't tell that the mic was there. And then I would check myself in the mirror to see if the mic was concealed or it doesn't look that weird. And uh, when I felt like it was good and in place, I left the house. The first day I recorded with Coach Bliss, Coach Bliss is at the board. He writes reasonable doubt. Reasonable doubt is. And he underlines it. can say that we paid his tuition because he's dead okay so you guys paid his tuition i remember sitting there getting upset uh but wanting to make sure i maintain my composure i remember getting nervous because i realized the damning things that he is saying are now recorded coach bliss wanted rt gwen ellis kid and harvey thomas to tell stories about Patrick. But what we want to do is um, they tell the story. You know, we, 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 we've been going out to Denny Heath's apartment, and what we've done out there at Denny Heath's apartment, you know, we'll go up there and we'll uh, smoke some weed and drink some stuff and have some ladies up there. Then there's one time I went out there, okay? Because this is like the middle of May, and uh, we're up there and we're getting ready to do some shit. Yeah, when it 
put the tray down, and, you know, and Patrick said something like, we're going to have some fun tonight, and we're going to let the other guys pay for it. And he brings out his little $100 bill. I mean, he's dead serious. And we're sitting in the locker room with Ellis Kidd. Coach is beginning to tell Ellis the story about the drugs. He's telling him, I've already got this information. I'm just looking for confirmation from you that this information is accurate. Now, that is a lie. He did, there are no witnesses saying there's wads of cash. First of all, that he is never going to refute what we say. If we say something about him, then he's dead. Uh, so, I mean, he isn't going to argue with you at all. I can put words in your mouth, but if you, if you just said this single statement, I think it would help. You know, one time I was over there doing it, and Pat, Pat, Pat brought, out, brought out a lot of stuff. to the tape before the other tape where you say we're going to invent wads of cash but he is now attributing his lie to other witnesses on august 8 2003 he resigned and eventually did confess to making payments of seven thousand dollars this resulted in baylor not being able to participate in non-conference games during the 2004-2005 season and half of the 2005-2006 season he had also been in trouble at SMU, Southern Methodist University, in the 1980s. The scholarship by selling drugs, because he, you know, this is off camera, but he was selling drugs. He sold to all the white guys on campus. Patrick, did he have a selling drugs? Oh, yeah. I mean, you don't think I, I'm, yeah, he, he was the worst. No, I never, I haven't found that. I know, yeah, I know, but I'm telling you. But, I mean, that's why. But you, but you, but you'll never be able to use this. How was that? How was that able to? Why wasn't that in? Because they were so busy hanging me. The NCAA also imposed a ten-year show cause penalty on Dave Bliss, meaning he couldn't coach for this time due to quote despicable behavior end quote and quote unethical conduct end quote. He never faced any criminal charges. Dave Bliss is now coaching again, this time at Southwestern Christian University. The man that taped him, Abar Rouse, was never able to get another coaching job and now teaches people in prison. The fact that Dave Bliss is coaching Abar Rouse is, is, is just flat out wrong in my view. I'm a teacher in a federal prison now. And I love it. I love what I do. I'm proud of what I do. If I was coaching, could I say the same thing? Coach Bliss has said that he is sorry and he deserves a second chance and has asked for redemption. I can't buy into it. I can't believe. And it's not because I don't believe in redemption or second chances. It's because I work with criminals on a constant basis. I know what fake redemption looks like and what real redemption looks like. I personally don't see any wrongdoing in what Abar Rouse did. Should he have recorded Dave Bliss? Probably not. But it would never have 
come to light otherwise because Dave Bliss is a lying piece of shit. Excuse my language. I also hope Carlton Dodson doesn't get paroled because I would be nervous for other people's safety. Baylor is now a really good basketball program and they are ranked number two in the country and their current coach, Scott Drew, was hired a few weeks after Dave Bliss left. He had to pick up Bliss's mess and made Baylor the program they are today. My book recommendation for this week is Little Threats by Emily Schultz. Summary. In the summer of 1993, twin sisters Kennedy and Carter are embracing the grunge era and testing every limit in their privileged Richmond suburb. But Kennedy's teenage rebellion goes too far when after a night of partying in the woods, her best friend Haley is murdered and suspicion quickly falls upon Kennedy. She can't remember anything about the night in question and this along with the damning testimony from a college boy who both Kennedy and Haley loved is enough to force Kennedy to enter a guilty plea. In 2008, Kennedy is released into a world that has moved on without her. Carter has grown distant as she questions Kennedy's innocence and begins a relationship with someone who could drive the sisters apart forever. The twins' father, Jerry, is eager to protect the family's secrets and fragile bonds, but Kennedy's return brings the tragedy back to the surface along with a whole new wave of media. When a crime show host comes to town asking questions, believing the murder wasn't as simple as it seemed, murky memories of Haley's death come to light. As new suspects emerge and the suburban woods finally give up their secrets, two families may be destroyed again. So I love this book. I thought the plot was really interesting. I love the dynamic between the main character and her family. I also enjoy how it went back in time and started with the main plot about what happened and how it took me as the reader through what actually happened, the trial, and who the real culprit was. It made each character look guilty at one point or another into the, until the truth was finally revealed. So I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please review my podcast on Apple Podcasts. I would love a five-star review. I would love to turn my hobby into a reality. Also, please subscribe to my blog. The link is in the show notes. Follow me on Instagram at It's Crime O'Clock Somewhere Blog Pod. And let me know what cases or documentaries I should cover. I will see you all next week. And remember, it's crime o'clock somewhere.